Okay, so this is the second interview in the Trees, People and the Built Environment for being put on by the Institute of Charter Foresters. And today's interview is with Ed McCann, who is the Vice President of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Sharon, tell us a bit about Ed. Ed is a civil engineer and he set up the Useful Simple Trust. He's known for being really innovative and working with multidisciplinary teams. He also set up the Get It Right initiative to stop waste and the Expedition Workshop. Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks and I'm Sharon Durdent-Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent-Hollenby and all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Ed McCann, the Vice President of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Thank you so much for joining us. Ed, I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and the roles, the many roles that you have. I'm a civil engineer. My background is, is as a civil engineer. After graduating what seems like a very long time ago now, I, I lived for a couple of years in Mexico where I did the postgraduate sort of degree. And then I've worked for about 10 years in water engineering, so flood defences, uh, water supply systems and so on. After that, I joined a startup business called Expedition Engineering, and I am one of the directors. One of my projects was the Olympic Velodrome, for example, on, in 2012. I've worked in Brazil, Chile, India, all over the place. And one of the things you're also involved in is a useful, simple trust, which seems to me to be about collaboration between different disciplines and ideas. Could you tell us something about that? The story is, is that the three of us who owned Expedition Engineering came to a moment where we decided that we wanted to set up a different structure. And in fact, we set up this thing called the Useful Simple Trust and we donated the company to this trust. So it became an employee owned organisation at that moment. Uh, and at the same time, the, the founders, as we were known, decided that instead of just carrying on doing the same sort of civil and structural engineering that tradition had been doing, we were interested in um, other things that were more broadly applicable to providing a better built environment. And so uh, the first thing we did was we set up an educational company focused on how to improve skills in construction, particularly around design. And that's a company called ThinkUp. We set up a, a sustainability consultancy called Useful Projects and a company joined us uh, specialising in graphic design and communications uh, called Thomas Matthews. So they, their founders chipped in and put them into the trust as well. And more recently, we, we've set up a, an architecture practice called Useful Projects. And the, the idea is that actually there's great benefit to the uh, the collaboration and challenge that comes from mixing with people from different backgrounds um, and with different perspectives and that the quality of thinking and ideas we find is superior if you have that kind of environment to do your stuff in. When we just work in our isolated professions, it's easy to get stuck in a groove, an entrenched way of thinking, because we've got to find new solutions. We've got to find a way right now to do things differently to achieve net zero carbon. Have you got any arboriculturalists or landscape architects involved with that? Not inside the trust. One of our guys, I probably shouldn't mention his name, but he was an urban tree gorilla in his youth. So he used to drive around London in a van. Uh, so the story goes uh, is they would 
plant trees in the middle of the night in most obscure places. Oh, okay. Well, actually, there's quite a few people who do that. So I think his secret is probably safe. He was an early exponent of the art. We don't have in-house landscape architects and the like. We work a lot with some very well-known landscape architects. And you're also involved with something called Get It Right Initiative. It's a cross-industry initiative that was generated or built out of answering the question how much money and waste is associated in the UK construction industry with errors, things we didn't mean to do that we did, and how much waste is in that. And we suspected, as a group, we suspected it might be quite a lot, and it turned out to be an absolutely huge number. Um, And what grew out of a research project is now a a sort of cross-industry initiative with something over 60 organisations working together to try and drive error and the consequent waste out of construction. And if to put context on that, something like 20% of all costs and materials and so on in construction are waste associated with error. And so it's a gargantuan amount of um, stuff that we're not doing very well. Oh, and are you seeing improvements, less waste, or is it too early to say? I think what's going to happen, though, is there's an increased focus on it. I mean, it used to be that the only thing that mattered was the money, um, and there, there is an increasing focus. Oh, it's not just about the money. I mean, even if you don't care about the money, it's increasingly unacceptable. It seems hard to imagine why it was ever even vaguely acceptable, but it's increasingly unacceptable. Also, you're involved with Expedition Workshed. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, so that, that's a, another cross-sector activity. It came out of looking at the way that people were learning in engineering, particularly undergraduate engineering. We we're looking initially at undergraduate engineering. And, and again, we were struck by the fact that you have, let's say, every single lecturer invents their own course, produces their own materials. And quite often, they're not, that's not their top skill. So what we decided to do is, well, why don't we start making some resources and innovating around how you use high-quality resources that are free at the point of use. So we started doing things like videoing experiments, but using TV production quality. So we'd have Darmark effectively a TV production crew, and, and, and video the sorts of experiments students are shown. And then we would just put them on the internet in this thing called the Expedition Workshop, which was a, a website. And it's astonishing. I mean, you would have people sitting in in Africa somewhere and you'd get a a note oh these are fantastic thank you very much we can't we haven't got any laboratories we never get to see this sort of stuff and is I can now see stuff that I've only been able to read about in textbooks today so we were exploring how you can learn through gamification so games to learn and uh, interactive stuff around to, to understand structural behavior and performance and we were playing around with this we made apps and we did online games and so on but we were probably about five or six years too early but there wasn't this sort of commercial interest in that sort of stuff that there is now so as partly as a result of what's gone on in schools this year with covid all of a sudden high quality learning resources online are even more important than they were a year ago and certainly more than they would have been viewed as when we started doing this stuff almost 10 years ago and they're so engaging, aren't they? People think, oh, I've got a problem. I wonder how to solve that. I might go into YouTube to see how to lay some floor tiles. That was me uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they thought, oh, that's how you do it. Um, so that's a really great initiative. I wonder if you've got anything about trees on that. 
We began to understand that there were different ways of learning different sorts of stuff, which isn't a very surprising idea, except when you think that when you go to university, everything is a lecture. But actually, it's not a very good way to learn certain sorts of things. And we were interested in in helping people acquire a, a sort of literacy or vocabulary around themes. So before you can plan a construction project, it's quite helpful to know what a dumper is, what a crane is, what a skip is, what a reinforced concrete lump looks like, and so on. You know, And you don't need to understand them necessarily in huge depth, but you do need to know what they're called and what they look like. So we built this game called Engineering Mastermind, which was, it was modelled on a, initially it was top trumps, but it ended up being something different. Remember, like, if you ever learned French at school, they would show you a picture of a, an apple and pom. Some says it's just like that, but it allows people to develop basic literacy around a subject area. And we've done saw mechanics and construction vehicles, and we're doing all sorts of... If you go on and have a look at it, you'll see there's loads of different classes of things. It would be absolutely simple to do trees for civil engineers. What does the civil engineer need to know? We're just doing a project for one of our clients at the moment where we're going to start doing carbon literacy using the same sort of model. What do you have to know about zero carbon to sort of make sense of it and understand the conversations that you're getting dragged into? I think with trees and civil engineering, this is part of my daily work. So I'm a chartered boriculturalist and I work on construction projects every day. And I have deep conversations with civil engineers most days. And I always have to say... I don't know much about trees. No, I say, well, the tree roots, <laughs> they don't just go straight down. The tree roots normally go further than the branches in an open field situation, but not at all in an urban situation. It's that they adapt to where they get their resources. If they're putting in a new road, it needs to be porous to let the tree roots breathe and water go down and it needs to not chop through the roots so no dig means no dig and um, a permeable road surface often has a, a perforated pipe buried underneath it which is a trench so I think there is huge work to do to share knowledge from each other so I end up having these conversations let's take drainage for example if the engineer will speak one language or it's um, a 750 millimeter diameter manhole and it's it's a private foul water drain etc and I go oh okay so you've got that there and I always ask my questions how deep and how wide do you need to dig and actually there seems to be a real disconnect sometimes between our two professions and it's often the game changer. For example, I carry out a lot of work in city locations, mainly London, highly complex construction in a small area, big trees, big buildings, new drainage, new levels, new roads and I can take it all the way through planning, everything's marvellous and then when it comes down to that design, I need to understand your problems of gravity falls and all of the things that you need to do. So how can we improve this between our two professions so that we have a greater understanding of each other? I'd be surprised if you weren't able to, within a context of two to four hours of structured learning, get most of what you needed to do, at least to understand when to ask a question and get someone else involved in it. Yeah. And then in terms of how do you advocate it is, through the professional institution, we can turn around to all of our members and say, well, not all of you are going to be working day to day in this sort of environment. For, but for people who are, here's a resource that's been co-developed by these organisations and, and vice versa. 
so I think that that's interesting as a sort of a, a potential area to collaborate. But the state of the art in relation to dealing with trees in an urban environment is not very advanced. And so you ask a questionnaire about how do I dig a trench, you know, for that? You know, what, what, how do I do that? And you find out that for a tiny little manhole, you've got a giant great hole. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. There are other ways that we can think about solving these sorts of problems if we knew they were problems. I think that uh, the early tree survey and good project management by the client, it's about having those early discussions and uh, the team working things out because quite often the two professions are working. They're not working against each other because we want to be friendly and we want to find a mutual solution but it happens quite late on in the process. And I think some education for, of both of our professions, of each other, can only be for the better. And innovation, as you say, there are fantastic products around for enabling good root space for newly planted trees connected together, which presumably you're involved in. So you've got the challenge where you're, you're working around existing trees. But I'm involved in a lot of projects where they are effectively brownfield redevelopments or, or new greenfield developments at scale conversation is increasingly around the streets as the former of the urban environment you know historically the focus was on the buildings and now the critical section is the section through the street and the relationship between the trees the cars the servicing in the road and all the rest of it is a very live topic for discussion at the moment all those involved understand the real value out of having quality green space in to this way and actually we don't really know how to do that very well when you contemplate um how how we overcome conceptions about whether trees pop curb stones out or knock it knock utilities over or whether they're going to grow up foul drains and all the sorts of things that have historically uh, been problematic when you put particularly services infrastructure and edges and fix stuff very close to growing trees which are are busting out of the ground and those sorts of things if you look at if you look online what you find is it's old and it doesn't reflect anything that we might do today uh, to rethink this problem so i think there's a route there's there's a it's an interesting space for for innovation if you could find the right sort of client interest you probably need to go to one of the big housing providers a Clarion or Barclay, who might be interested in solving that problem or having a look at that problem. You need a demand signal. You can't expect some guy inventing root barriers to take the hit on investing and all the rest of it just in case. There are, I mean, I've just interviewed Green Blue Urban and there are other companies as well who provide root barriers and root space and in integrated SUD systems and systems that include the underground services. So they are available. The issue is sometimes cost. So sometimes those elements get value engineered out. Quite a lot of those things as well, you'll find their products are available, but in, an, in a road that's going to be adopted by a local authority, it turns out they don't meet adoption criteria and they haven't got a track record in operation on local authority land that allows them to be there. So, so this is why I say you've got to get the market right for those products to work. So it's either got to be developers who are not interested in adoption or you've got to somehow or other work with the adopting authorities to revise the standards to reflect the new technology. All of that requires quite a lot of effort. Like all of these things, I mean, over the years, we've been involved in a great many sort of initiatives to try and drive change 
in the industry and there are sort of ingredients of success in this and, and having a strong client demand and a driver for change. And it's usually not enough to rely on the product inventor or vendor. Exactly. They're part of the solution, but it has to be a driver for change. There has to be appetite and budget from the client. But actually also said something which is at times a real barrier, forgive the pun, the adopting authority. So I've got a case at the moment where it's been a particular problem. So what are the issues with adopting authorities from being more creative and more adventurous if it means that we can keep good trees or plant more trees, given that those own authorities may have their own net zero carbon targets, which trees are part of? What, what do you think is a problem there? In, in my experience is that there's a lot of fear and concern, you know, they're confronted with something that they don't necessarily understand very well. You know, they worry about making decisions that they don't, frankly, have the technical wherewithal. So they grab hold of the comfort of the known and the tension between, you know, we need to change in order to achieve these other goals. That's not screaming at them at the moment. Fear of the fear of you know, letting something through that sets a precedent and then all of a sudden the curbstones are popping everywhere and there's a car crash because somebody's driven off the road into a tree and it's obscured a sign somewhere or, you know, whatever it is that that, that, that has led to the current thinking. And a lot, a lot of the thinking around this is about conception of vehicle-prioritised streets. So, you know, the way we have roundabouts in the UK is they're really designed to allow people to go through them without slowing down. Whereas if you imagine Spain, they have zebra crossings on every entry and exit to a roundabout, and that's to slow the vehicles down. In the UK, we had the alternative conception was we try and design roundabouts that minimise disruption to the vehicle driver. So we've got street philosophy, a design philosophy on streets which is very very focused on driver speed and driver safety and have had for years and so we need to sort of invert that and go actually the streets are about something else and by the way the tree has a very important role to play in that whole story and so let's figure out how to deal with the car you know not driving into the tree or having its view of a sign obscured rather than just saying lose the tree i i agree it seems to be a matter then for policy change to make that happen generally, um, national and regional policy changes on how our streets function and what their role is. The work that the National Infrastructure Commission are doing around design and the integrated design that civil engineers do with landscape and architects and all the characters involved in that sort of stuff is, is getting a good look at. And they did something earlier this year, actually, so design guidelines and so on. So I think it's an interesting moment to start raising those issues around well how do we design these things but I I come back to the point I said earlier where I think actually there's a literacy challenge so that the individuals concerned can communicate effectively and understand what the issues are but there's actually a decent amount of work to be done to upskill people and to actually develop technologies and practices in relation to this sort of interaction between for example trees and roads and services and so on there's work to be done before we can be confident and the adopting authorities can sit there and go, okay, I can feel comfortable adopting this. And so finally, Ed, tell us why are you involved with Trees, People and the Built Environment 4? 
I think um, the quality of urban spaces is so strongly linked to the the way that flora and fauna are integrated into them and the opportunities and need for doing this better than we do at the moment, I think is, is paramount. So that's why I'm coming along, looking forward to it. Wow, wasn't it interesting to hear about somebody who's really passionate about communicating how we can find new solutions in civil engineering. Okay, so who's next in line for the Trees People in the Built Environment Conference? Well, we're going to be speaking to Dinah Bornat. She's an architect who really specialises in child-friendly cities. I love speaking to her about essentially rewilding play. Wow, sounds interesting. Okay, so we will see you at the next time, which is pretty soon, actually. Uh, we'll see you next time for the Tree Lady Talk. Say goodbye, Sharon. Bye. No triangles this week.